Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to the Megan Kelly Show. Today on the program, we've got Mike Rowe. You know him from Dirty Jobs, among many other successful television shows. He's called the dirtiest man in TV, but he has the clearest heart. And uh, today, he's talking about, well, a new show that he's going to be having uh, out in just a couple of days. But the thing about Mike Rowe is he's got a lot of smart insights on this country. And it's backbone in the same way that people have called J.D. Vance, the working class whisperer. You could say that about Mike. He's not a partisan guy, uh, but he's one of those big picture guys who can see the country for what it is, where it's come from and where it's going. Understands the Trump voter in a profound way and isn't judgmental, but is insightful. So I think you're going to love him. Um, There's. There's not a dirty moment, but there's a couple of R-rated moments that you're going to laugh at. We'll bring that to you in one second. But first, let's talk about good skincare. You know, as you go in the new year, you're thinking like, I'm going to diet and I'm going to eat better and I'm going to drink less and I'm going to take better care of myself. Well, Jan Marini can help you. If you're starting to feel like your skin looks a little sun damaged or weathered or old, <clears throat> try Jan Marini's skin research. She is a recognized leader and innovator in skincare, award-winning. I have used these products. She sent me some, and they're beautiful. The packaging is beautiful. It's sleek. There's no odor, which I love. I don't want odors in my skincare. If I want to smell like something other than myself, I'll spray it on me. I don't want to rub it all over my face. It's weird just to put a bunch of fragrance on your face anyway, I think. Um, It's a five-step program that includes cleansing, rejuvenating, resurfacing, hydrating, and protecting and that's all important. Cleansing's obvious. Rejuvenating, yes. You got to resurface before you can hydrate because as my friend Dan says, there's no point in watering the desert, right? You got to like resurface the skin so that it's not like the sandy desert. So it, it can take the hydration and then protection with some SPF. For 10 years, 10 consecutive years, Jan Marini was awarded uh, by New Beauty Magazine as Best skincare System for Aging Skin. In fact, she's got more beauty awards from New Beauty than any other skincare company. Great, great products that'll help you fight fine lines, wrinkles, discoloration, sun damage, of course, and much, much more. Um, And their products are hydrating. They're calming. Numerous clinical studies conducted by leading dermatologists behind them. Um, Very simple to follow. They tell you, put it on in the morning, put it on a at nighttime. So they've really helped you. You don't have to figure it out. You can get them at physician's offices, at med spas, at spas, and at all 1100 Massage Envy franchise locations. Or if you don't feel like doing any of that, just go to janmarini.com, J-A-N-M-A-R-I-N-I.com to find locations for you or for purchase directly from them. 
Um, plus, they've got great holiday offerings available still. And always uh, with two-day free shipping. That's nice. So go ahead and transform your skin this new year with Jan Marini. Mike Rowe, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. And full disclosure, I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> Perfect. I'll take you however I can get you. I'm not proud. <laughs> um, you, you're, you're a very kind man, very generous beginning. And uh, you're also a very successful one, in part because of your honesty. Uh, your self-deprecating nature, which I love. And um, let me just tick through a couple of things that you've been doing and are about to do just so the audience understands. So not only did you host the huge, hugely successful Dirty Jobs on Discovery, which is how most of us got to know you. Uh, also had a show on CNN and TBN. Somebody's got to do it. Uh, and now you're you're hosting a very successful show on Facebook Watch, returning the favor. It's been a big hit. You got a mysteries pod, which I listen to in the car sometimes, called The Way I Heard It. You got the Mike Rowe Works Foundation, which awards scholarships to students pursuing careers in skilled trades. And now on January 4th, a new show on Discovery called Six Degrees with Mike Rowe. I can barely keep I'm exhausted just thinking about this. But I got to start with that because uh, I read the description. It said it's, it's going to have questions and answers on issues like how a mousetrap can cure your hangover. <laughs> so let's start there. How? Help me. <laughs> well, clearly I can't hold a job, but thank you for walking <laughs> me through my my misspent career. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And you're right. The next endeavor is called Six Degrees. And basically it happened. I guess you remember the old uh, parlor game, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Yep. Where you have to, you know, connect six movies to get to him or less. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what started it. Years ago, one of my bosses at Discovery said, if you can ever make a history show for people who don't watch history shows, you can probably write your own ticket. So I've been thinking about that for a long time. And Six Degrees with Mike Rowe is just an attempt to connect two seemingly disparate objects, as you suggest in this case, how a, how a mousetrap can cure your hangover, how a horseshoe can find your soulmate, how a sheep can do your taxes, the weirder the better. And um, I get an hour to try and figure out how those two things in fact are connected. And uh, I get to use any production device, no matter how cheap, contrived, or ill-conceived. We use puppets, we use animation, we use modestly priced recreations with actors of dubious talent. We use archival footage, and it's basically me walking through time on a budget. <laughs> with a little help from my best friend, Chuck, who's a guy I went to high school with, a very talented actor who's about my age, but uh, continues to push the boulder up the hill here in Los Angeles. So I hired him to play 40 or 50 different historical characters. So the two of us have a great time putting together a show with Kleenex and spit. And somehow or another, what came out the other end was a, was a fun look at the surprising ways people are connected through space and time. And uh, the Discovery Channel picked it up. They're putting it on their new streaming service. And if I can believe the press release, uh, it starts on the 4th of January. And I don't want to overstate it, Megan, but I think it's going to be the uh, feel-good hit of the winter. <laughs> wow. Well, congratulations to Chuck on finally making his friendship with you pay off. I mean, first of all, <laughs> 40 that, years that's the hard way, right? That, that's good work. But 
So is there, do I have to watch the show? You're not going to tell, is there actually a way in which, you know, because like I dealt with a lot of mousetraps. I know you're from Baltimore. I lived there for a year and we killed 21 mice in one year. Uh, We were right by the harbor. It's a problem. And uh, I used a lot of mousetraps while there, but, and I was also hung over many times. So I, I am genuinely curious whether there's a connection between those two things. Well, there's a connection between everything. I don't care how convoluted it is. If you have enough time and enough wine, um, and enough, you know, <laughs> producers around you, I get, I promise you, you can make a show. Now, I can tell you how it works, but it's kind of like my podcast, you know, I don't want to wreck it because mm-hmm. part of the, what I hope is the fun of the show is having viewers right from the start say, Oh, what? No way. How can you possibly land that plane? But, um, but you can, because the mousetrap you know, the search for a better mousetrap is universal. And we begin our story with a guy named Hiram Maxim, who's a very famous inventor, who as a kid was working in a shop up in Maine that was overrun with mice. And he literally went on a quest to build a better mousetrap. This guy patented or should have patented everything from the mousetrap to the light bulb. He didn't. Consequently, he lost out on a lot of opportunity, but he did invent the Maxim machine gun, which changed the course of the First World War, which also introduced war tubas, which uh, allowed us to, you know, search for oil. Ultimately, war tubas were these things that you pointed toward the ground to figure out where the gunfire was coming from, from your enemy. One thing leads to the next, and before you know it, uh, well, I'm just not going to tell you how it ends, Megan. I'm I'm going <laughs> in in the business. We would call that a tease. So I'm, I love it. I'm trying. It to worked. I, I'm in. You're good at it. I I didn't realize until I read up on your bio before today that you had worked at QVC for three years on the overnight shift as a result of your ability to spend eight minutes talking about the values of a pen. So I, you were meant to succeed in this kind of a career, and your tease is further evidence of that. Can we can we spend one minute on QVC? Because uh, I actually have a friend who does some work on QVC right now. I find it fascinating. It it, it is a skill set. Well, it's a weird muscle. And um, back in 1989, 1990, when I far gumped my way onto the air, there was no real playbook for how to hire a host. No one, no one really knew what to look for. You know, people with TV experience didn't necessarily know how to sell and professional salespeople weren't necessarily good on TV. So they determined the only way to logically cast was to go around the country and set up cameras and ask people to talk about a pencil until they told them to stop. And I didn't know it, you know, but that that was the audition. I was singing in the Baltimore Opera at the time and I I crashed a national talent search for QVC host, really to settle a bet. Anyway, I talked about a pencil for eight minutes. They gave me a job on the spot. I took it and entered a three-month period of double secret probation where from 3 to 6 a.m. every morning, I tried to make sense of a just a bottomless bin of doomed products that had failed to sell in prime time. That's how you learn, right? And so you sit there in the middle of the night talking about the various uh, features and benefits of the health team infrared pain reliever or the Amcor negative ion generator, whatever that is. Oh, oh wow. And um, yeah, long story short, I made fun of the products I didn't understand, uh, sparred with the viewers who at that hour were mostly an assortment of narcoleptic lonely hearts. 
and turned my shift into a weird talk show, which went on for three years. So as much as I make fun of those crazy days and the incredible weirdness of the whole home shopping industry, the truth is I learned everything I ever needed to know about TV in the middle of the night, selling products mm -hmm. I didn't understand to an audience I couldn't relate to. You know, but it does underscore sort of the paucity of options we had in television back then. I grew up at the same time and yeah. that that would pass as entertaining back then, There, you know, especially overnight. We didn't have the ability to download anything we wanted. You were stuck with what was on television. And somehow at those hours in particular, whatever you talk, the ionic, whatever, is a lot more interesting than the back of your eyelids at two in the morning when you can't sleep. So I, on behalf of all those who suffered alongside me, thank you. Well, look, you know, you probably remember the moment in your life on TV when you when you learned a lesson or two that that changed everything. I had a few of those moments. And and for me, the first one was on QVC, where I realized you know, the most important thing to do is not to entertain the audience. It's to, it's to entertain me, you know? <laughs> I mean, you have to amuse yourself, I think. My favorite comedians, you know, when, it, when I watch them work, I don't, I don't see people trying to make me laugh. I see people trying to make themselves laugh. Same thing with writers, you know? It's a, it's a subtle distinction, but, but it matters. And I remember... Really, the first big lesson for me was the first night I was on the air. And they, they, they brought me that thing I mentioned, the Health Team Infrared Pain Reliever, which, which looks like a small flashlight with a small red knob on the end that emits infrared light that purportedly relieves your arthritis, you know? You're selling but, millions of them right now. I thought it was a joke. It was 1999. I couldn't believe it was real. So I looked into the camera and I held this thing up in my hands and I said, hi, everybody. I'm Mike. I'm the new guy. This is the Health Team Infrared Pain Reliever. I, I don't know what it does. If you have one, um, <laughs> could, could you call the number on the screen and maybe explain <laughs> it to me? And Do my so, job for me. I mean, honestly, it was very much a Mark Twain, you know, help me paint the fence kind of thing. Um, but the phone lines exploded. And I spent three hours literally sitting there listening to viewers explain to me what the various widgets were that they brought me. And that was a big lesson, too. That is brilliant. And did you wind up going home with all the products? Oh, yeah. I mean, to this day, my garage is full of so much crap from not just from QVC, from from dirty jobs. And when I say crap, Megan, I mean, literally, I used to do these weekly auctions called Collectibles Rare and Precious, <laughs> which of course stood for crap. And I would auction these things off, usually with a story and an autograph to raise money for my foundation. But some of the stuff from the old days at QVC went for thousands of dollars, like a doll. Oh, wow. We used to sell collectible dolls. I didn't know people collected dolls, but they do. And um, somehow or another, I wound up on the doll collector hour. There's still footage out there of this. But when I tell you things went wrong, I mean, they went so breathtakingly, gobsmackingly, horrifyingly wrong that um, you just have to refer to the video. But to see a grown man with a nun doll in his lap trying to wind <laughs> her up so she can sing Climb Every Mountain, it's, 
it doesn't get much weirder <laughs> than that, really. I heard you tell a story on Ben Shapiro about uh, your about that crap, um, and it involved Donald Trump that you reached out to him, uh, among others, to try to make a donation to get to get them to make a donation. Can you can you enlighten sure. the audience on what we're talking about? What happened? Yeah, in fact, that story uh, had an unexpected chapter two, which just came to a close. But it started in 2015 when I had a show on CNN that was getting preempted every week, you know, because the world was heating up and the election was coming. And the, the show was called Somebody's Got to Do It. And it like every single week, I, I changed the title to Somebody's Got to Find It because Jeff Zucker kept moving the thing around because I'm constantly preempted by all the trouble in the world, you know. And so. Eventually, he said, Mike, just take the show back. The election's coming. We're going into the Donald Trump business full time. And I said, all right. So I wrote an open letter to all the candidates at the time, Hillary, Bernie and Donald. And I said, look, guys, thanks to y'all. I just got booted off CNN to make it up. Why don't you each send me something I can auction off for my foundation? I said, Hillary, why don't you send me one of your pantsuits? You know, sign the uh, <laughs> sign the pants. Right. I said, Bernie, send me one of those. One of those awful wrinkled tweed jackets you always wear, you know, sign the inside pocket. And then to Trump, I said, sign me, send me a bathrobe. Just grab a bathrobe from one of your gajillion hotels and autograph the thing. And I'll auction it off and the money will go to our work ethic scholarship program and it'll be fun. Well, I didn't expect to hear from any of them, but Donald Trump sent me an autographed bathrobe <laughs> two days later. Wow. And two days after that, I'm wearing the thing, making a video for Facebook. I got 5 million people on his Facebook page, and I know half of them are going to lose their minds. But I say, look, a deal's a deal. It's an autographed Donald Trump bathrobe. I'm auctioning it off the highest bidder. Uh, within 24 hours, a woman named Angela Phillips bid $15,550. No. I swear to God. So the, bath, the Donald Trump bathrobe became a thing. And so I sent it to her and she sent me the money and it took our, our whole crap auction thing to a, to a new level. But then <laughs> this year, because I got so much crap from people who were upset, you know, that I would do or say anything remotely complimentary to Trump. I said, look, I'll do it again next year and I'll make the same offer to all the candidates. So I wrote an open letter to Joe Biden and I said, look, man, fair is fair. Send me an autographed robe. And I'll auction it off. I, I never heard from him. But Angela Phillips sent me the robe back and said, Mike, I have a feeling it's going to go for more this year. I love your foundation and oh, I hate to part her. with it. But why don't you auction it off again? Right. I mean, amazingly generous. So I put the thing on, sat in the same place, auctioned it off. It went for $45,000. <gasps> O-M-G. Now, here's the you crazy are part. You're kidding me. Who? What? Guess she who was Stormy Daniels. Was. Stormy Daniels. <laughs> no. No, she already has was... one. She had one. What am I saying? <laughs> no, she's got the slippers. Um, <laughs> no, Angela Phillips bought it back. Oh, God bless her. Right? Oh, I love Angela Phillips. This woman. Who is she? Do we need, are, am I supposed to know her? Well, no, I didn't know her, but I just Zoomed her the other day because enough already. Like, I got to know who you are. Angela right. Phillips lives in Ohio, and she runs a terrific company called the Phillips Tube Group. They make 
they make tubes like pipes, you know, for the inside of, yeah. you know, and so just another one of those companies you would never think about. I mean, who makes tubes, right? But mm -hmm. tubes and pipes hold civilization together. And Angela Phillips happens to own a, a going concern in that, in that vertical. And mm -hmm. she uh, loves my foundation. And so rather than just write me a check for 60 grand, she bought Donald Trump's bathrobe twice. I mean, that's just not a sentence you wow. would think you'd ever say in the course of life. But there it is. So I... I wouldn't describe this as crap exactly, but I do I do have something uh, that you could potentially auction off one of these days, which is Tell me. Uh, I, I interviewed Dennis Rodman, the Henry mm -hmm. Kissinger of our time, and um, <laughs> he gave me a basketball with his picture, Donald Trump's picture and Kim Jong Un <laughs> signed by Holy him. Holy smokes. I mean, I think we could get big bucks for that. That is a major trifecta. You and I together hawking that thing for a week between Facebook and our podcasts. Man, we could probably close the skills gap single-handedly. <laughs> totally. That could be a seven-figure payoff for, <laughs> for people well, you who know really what? could use it. Had we had more time with this last bathrobe and, and the election hadn't gone so completely berserk, I was going to reach out to his campaign and, and say, Donald, if you want some... I mean, the kind of press you can't buy, not that you need it, but why don't you buy your own autographed bathrobe back for a million bucks? It'd be a mm. great donation and people would love you, <laughs> but I never had time to do it. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that would have gone as well as you would have hoped. No. <laughs> um, one of the things I laughed about on your on your list of many accomplishments, I mean, cheered and then laughed, was you listed that... Um, Forbes has identified you as one of the country's 10 most trustworthy celebrities in 2010, 2011, and 2012, which led me to ask, what happened? What did you do in 2013? It was a rough year, Megan. Lots of, <laughs> lots of poor choices. That's um, got to hurt. Yes, I was, I was number four, I think, on the list of most trusted celebrities, which is kind of backhanded compliment if I ever got one. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that anything completely crapped the bed in 2013, but, but what happened in the five or six years prior to that, you know, I, I was the discovery guy for a long time. In fact, you know, you could make a case. I still kind of am because the show still airs every day and will continue to for the rest of my life. But you know, Discovery is a big blue chip brand. It's a big family brand. And, um, you know, people trust that brand. And at the same time, I was also up to my neck with Ford. I probably did 300 commercials for Ford. And Ford also had a great, great reputation at the time. That was back when Mulally famously didn't take the money when everybody else did. And I was out there on his behalf telling the story of Ford, a company that basically you know, it's just a, a great comeback story. So between Discovery and Ford, I was associated with some pretty uh, likable brands. Plus, if you knew me in those days, it was probably because, you know, I was crawling through a sewer once or twice a week. And studies show, Megan, when you see a guy on the TV covered in other people's crap, he, he's probably not trying to sell you anything. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's a guy you can trust. <laughs> and so sadly 
people did not have the same reaction to my experience in cable, where I was also covered in crap for many, many years, but did not emerge in the same way. Well, look, there's some showers that can actually cl- cleanse you. Um, I'm afraid that the uh, that the world from which you emerged, uh, you know, it was a different kind of poo, a metaphorical poo. Um, <laughs> but I hear you, you know, I mean, and it's fascinating. I, I remember watching you every day and thinking, you know, this woman is completely in on the joke. And, and that's something that I used to say about the people we featured on Dirty Jobs, you know, in a very general way. You know, there's some people who have their tongue in their cheek and they get it. And, and for me, you know, when you were really blowing up on Fox in the early days, I really enjoyed watching you because I, it felt to me like you were <laughs> a reformed lawyer who was having a go at the TV thing and just laughing yourself sick as soon as the camera stopped rolling because you were figuring it out, you know? Well, you're not wrong. I mean, I do think there's a lot of value for any media person in having done another job, a quote, real job prior to going into media, because it's like the the media navel gazing and the, the willingness to take themselves so seriously is laughable. You know, it's like you're on the sidelines. You're not on the playing field. So don't act like you're the star quarterback. You're not right. And, like That's how and, I always and, saw it. And don't act like you're a paragon of authenticity. I mean, every single thing about our stupid industry is an artifice. It's all pretense from the prompter to the makeup to the, I mean, all of it, you know, and, and it's so ironic to me because today it it seems like authenticity is for sale, like, like never before. And yet from a production standpoint, when I look around, you know, and I put myself in this category too, the, the barriers to authenticity that we build ourselves are, are mind boggling and mm-hmm. endless. And, and we do it all the time. And I, I just think part of what's gone on in the country these last few years and, and part of what's happening right now on a communications level is people's patience, their BS meter. Is, is so finely tuned that skepticism, and I, I think this is a good thing, you know, cynicism, not so much, but we have to be a more skeptical people if we're ever going to get to a place where we can be more discerning and, and hold people's feet to the fire. Experts are under siege like never before, and rightfully so, because mm-hmm. you know what? They all sound this, they sound when they're wrong, they sound the same way they do as when they're right. And scary. I mean, it's, it's so fundamental, but I, you can't blame a reasonable person for saying, you know, Dr. Fauci, when you told me the mask was a bad idea, you sounded just as credible as you do when you tell me it's imperative. And I believed you. I believed you. I believed you. And now And now what? I'm being told I have to believe you again because science, because initials after your name, because you're telling me what you're telling me on a name in news that's most trusted or fair and balanced or blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. People are right to be skeptical. Yeah. Or I'm a bad person. Well, I don't you know, you 
you sort of sacrifice that credibility early on. So I don't feel bad. I will say one one word in defense of cynics. They're very fun to have around. I love having a, a drink or a dinner with a cynic at the table because I just love that sort of dark outlook every once in a while from as opposed to I, I'll give you one example. When I was on the Today Show, I went we did like this round table. It was Hoda Kotb, Savannah Guthrie. Um, I can't remember a couple of other folks, maybe Jenna. And um, there was a question that was circulated like on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? Mm-hmm. And on a day to day basis. And, and literally they were like, at 10, 10, 10, 10. I was like, maybe six. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming in about a four, four today. Yeah, like a four, uh, sometimes a nine, you know, like amazing, you know, the birth of my child. Um, and they were looking at me like I was nuts. I was like, who, this is bullshit. Nobody yeah. is a 10 out of 10. Like, come on, that's nonsense. And so I always love the cynic who's like, two, fuck off. <laughs> right. They're just fun to but spend look, time with. Right. But all, the, the cynic, you know, is just kind of another word for the devotee of the reverse commute. If everybody at that dinner party had said four or five, well, then what would the cynic do? One? I mean, where do you go when, you know, the consensus is 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 clear? The cynic mm-hmm. goes the other way. Uh, usually, you know, it's it's the contrarian. So, you know, it's kind of like salt, you know, it's a it's a really important part of the meal. But, you know, when you're surrounded by cynics, then you're going to need a vacation real soon. Yeah, it's true. You can't have too many at one dinner table. No, but I I I I think your point about authenticity is a good one. We that word gets used so much. Um, But I I one of the things I love about you is I feel that you have it. I can tell in the way you talk about yourself and I have it now, but I didn't always. I had to work at it. And one of the gifts that I received from Roger Ailes, with whom I, you know, now infamously have documented, had a strange and you know tough relationship in many ways. But one of the gifts he gave me was honest feedback about how I did not appear authentic at all, and about how it was very clear to him when I first started on the air at Fox, I had these walls up around me meant to protect myself which is a human thing. Most of it, most of us have those walls. And certainly if you put most people up in front of millions of other people, you know, j- just just take a fraction of that, take a football stadium, you know, let's say 130,000 people, um, they're going to freeze up. <laughs> they're not going to want to show their weaknesses or talk about themselves in a way that reveals any vulnerability. And I 100% had that, especially coming out of the law where it was like, sure. killer adversaries everywhere, you know, who, who I think are smarter than I am. And I'm I, I don't know if I can measure up and I've got to put on my my warrior gear. Yeah, and it well, took a while. Look, took a while to dismantle. Well, the stakes the stakes of being wrong as a lawyer are very, very high. You know, mm-hmm. the stakes of being wrong as an anchor are are also high, but at least you can, you know, there are a whole bunch of people you can blame. Um, <laughs> and but it's just TV. It's just in the it, end, it's just TV. It is just TV, but you know, the more we crave authenticity, the more I think socially we become uh, pedants. You know, we we are a nation of correctors right now. Mm-hmm. And people are, you know, sitting there on the edge of their seat waiting to scamper off to their little piece of social media to explain why Megan got it wrong or how Mike got it wrong. You know, that that participle was dangling. 
right? This, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it can be anything, you know? And so, so true. on the one hand, I do applaud a heightened level of skepticism. On the other hand, I bemoan this obsession with correction. Have you ever Googled yourself? You know you have. <laughs> Your neighbors, how about that? Well, the majority of Americans admit to keeping an eye on their online reputation. But Google and Facebook are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to finding public records. There is an innovative new website called Truthfinder, and it is now revealing the full scoop on millions of Americans. Truthfinder can search through hundreds of millions of public records in a matter of minutes. Truthfinder members can begin searching in seconds for sensitive data like criminal, traffic, and arrest records. Before you bring someone new into your life and around the people you care so deeply for, consider trying Truthfinder. What you find may astound you. This might be the most important web search that you ever do, so do it. Go to truthfinder.com slash Kelly right away to start searching. Again, that's truthfinder.com slash Kelly. With regard to authenticity, the most confusing thing for people is to conflate it with being correct. You can be authentic and be dead wrong. Um, you know, that that same Forbes piece that you referenced, uh, in that same year anyway, John Stewart, at the height of The Daily Show, was evaluated, weighed, and measured by all kinds of pollsters and determined to be the most trustworthy name in news, more so than any of the any of the anchors, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's not because he was more accurate. <laughs> it was because no. he made he made a lesser claim. You know, he didn't claim to always be right. And the lesson in that, you know, I mean, on dirty jobs, the mission statement, you know, I I wrote it very, very specifically. This was before John was on, but, you know, it's just managing expectations was the whole thing. That's why your industry is so screwed, you know, because there is no management of expectations. Fair, balanced, most trusted. You know, it's like, okay, that's some pretty tall cotton. On Dirty Jobs, I said, My name is Mike Rowe, and this is my job. I explore the country looking for people who aren't afraid to get dirty, hardworking men and women who do the kinds of jobs that make civilized life possible for the rest of us. If you really look at that claim, what did I say? My name's Mike. I'm going to explore the country looking for people. Not, not, I didn't even promise to find anybody, much less do a good show. <laughs> I mean, and so. It's good. Yeah, expectation setting. Yeah. It's. I'm not saying anything new or revelatory, but it just seems like so many people who fall from grace do so because they they hoist themselves up there, you know. And in my industry, in nonfiction, you know, these survival experts will tell you, "I've got information that can save your life." Well, Jesus Christ, really? All right, show me, show me how you're going to save my life. We're over here. Mike is saying, "Look, I'm just going to crawl through this river of shit." with a sewer inspector and maybe <laughs> learn a thing or two about the second law of thermodynamics vis-a-vis the disintegration of the bricks. Oh, well, yeah, it could, be, it could be fun. It could be entertaining. And maybe, maybe you'll learn something. Maybe you won't. Maybe you just have a good time. I mean, I'll steal the last word on John Stewart, though. I have to tell you, it, it always bothered me when people would celebrate him in that way, because having been the target of his attacks many times, 
mm-hmm. they were not every time, but they were so frequently dishonest, like completely invented and out of context. And one time on the air, I actually said, he's mean. I thought he was mean. And mm-hmm. he he called me. He called me because he didn't like the fact that I said that. And I, and my assistant, Abby, who I love, sh- she was outside my desk and she took the call and she said, oh, my God, if, if he says he's John Stewart. I don't think it's John. It, it can possibly be John Stewart. Is it John Stewart? And um, I took the call. We had a long talk about it and he didn't want to be called mean. Uh, he sort of fell back on the old, like, I, I follow a cartoon, you know, that's kind of my gig. And I was like, that's bullshit. You, it's you know total you're bullshit. being taken. Yeah. You're being taken seriously. You're putting out this messaging as though it is real, except you don't have the balls to own it. Like you got to own right. it. If you're at least I go out there and I say that I'm doing my best to tell you what the news is, what I see as true. You can try to check me. You can challenge me, but this is how I see it. He, he wouldn't do that. He'd always fall back on ha ha comedy. Yeah, so I'm he a morphed comedian. into a dangerous place. No, it's, look, I wasn't trying to compliment him specifically for the level of trust he garnered. I'm really just saying that when the landscape is so saturated by people who are promising you the absolute truth, and a guy comes along and says, jokes, comedy, but by the way, all of a sudden, that cuts through. That's the reverse commute. That's the cynic at your dinner party, you know? Mm -hmm. And by the way, not to make it all about me, but (laughs) they hired me to do that job twice. Twice. What do you mean? To sit in for Stewart? No. When Comedy Central launched The Daily Show, they did an exhaustive search. And I auditioned two times and they hired me. They hired me on a on a Friday and said, come on in Monday, meet the writers. The job is yours. And over the weekend, uh, I think it was Doug Herzog, uh, who really wanted Craig Kilborn to do that show, uh, called ESPN and ESPN relented and let Craig out of his contract. I went in Monday to meet the writers and there was nobody in the writer room except Madeline oh, Smithberg. Who had hired me. Yeah. So <laughs> It, this is funny. They offered me a correspondent role and I was like, ah, oh, God, damn, that's frustrating. And at the same time, Dick Clark hired me to host a game show out in LA. So I took the game show. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> a year later, of course, Kilborn just eats their lunch, quits, goes off to do his thing. And they call me back, Megan. And I swear to God, this is true. They call me back and they say, Mike, we're sorry about last time. You're our guy. The job is yours if you still want it. I said, of course I want it. Of course I want it. And they said, the only way this isn't going to work out, (laughs) and this is a direct quote, is if our cheap ass network comes up with a big pile of money for a Dennis Miller or a Norm MacDonald or a Jon Stewart, but that's never going to (laughs) happen. Two days later, Stewart signs a $4 million deal. And I'm still oh hosting my. game shows. <laughs> See, I told you, John Stewart is mean. That was mean too. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, what was the game show? It was called No Relation, and it was actually pretty good. It was sort of a ripoff of the old um, "To Tell the Truth." So you'd have a family on, right? The Johnsons mm-hmm. and uh, three B-list celebrities question the Johnsons because one of them is actually impersonating a Johnson, 
the real Johnson is backstage watching. So the celebrities have to figure out who the fake Johnson is through a series of uh, insightful queries. I was the host. And I like we did that. 40. It was, it was, it was pretty good. And we did done, we did 40 episodes and we would have done a lot more except, except the celebrities were so damn dumb. They couldn't figure <laughs> it out. They could never figure out who the missing Johnson was. And so I gave away all our grand prizes in the first week. <laughs> and then you're out of budget. We, we totally, I spent the whole budget, like every single contestant won. So every family wound up with an all expense paid trip to Mexico. <laughs> I changed the name to hello Mexico because everybody on no relation was a winner. It got so the bad. families he, won if they fooled the celebrities and the families won every time is your point. That, right now, you know, <laughs> the only rule was you can't lie and the celebrities have to try and find who the imposter is. They couldn't do it. It got to the point where I was, <laughs> we were hiring black imposters to sit in a white family, right? <laughs> but the celebrity's like, no, 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 you're trying to fool us. It can't be that one. <laughs> so anyway. That's, but that is what's amazing. If you spend time with celebrities, not all, of course, but a, a large amount, you realize there, it, I think in, in many cases, it takes an empty noggin <laughs> to be this amazing actor you need somebody else to fill it up and the emptier the better because you go out there with somebody else's words and motivation and you can make it happen not all some are brilliant but some are completely numbskulls and you you think immediately where like doug and i would go to these events you know with like whatever the met gala or what have you mm -hmm. and nine times out of ten we'd find ourselves talking to like the security guard or, you know, some some guy who works for the city, you know, sanitation department who just got asked there to make some yeah. rich person look good. You know, it, you, it was really hard to find substance there other than someone who's going to talk to you and look beyond your shoulder for somebody who's more famous or more rich. Well, you spend your whole life, you know, memorizing other people's words. You know, I acted for maybe 20 years before I stumbled into this nonfiction unscripted world. Thank God. And mm. I mean, I say that it's, it's not, I enjoyed it. You know, I had a lot of acting gigs and, uh, but, but fundamentally, you know, everything in fiction starts with the writer and everything in nonfiction starts with the principal. And so, you know, if you don't have anybody telling you where to stand or what to say or what to read or how to behave, well, then you'll either find that incredibly liberating or or deeply terrifying. And, you know, most actors, <laughs> when you really see them out there without a net, you know, it's, it's not pretty. No, it's not. It's not. So let's talk about it. It's interesting because as you were saying that, I was thinking that I, I'm, of course, a, a journalist and my, my husband is a writer. He's He writes novels and now he's actually working on a nonfiction book, but that's probably why we get along so well because he's substantive he has ideas he has thoughts and it's he's an interesting person to sit across the dinner table from and will be even when he's old and gross <laughs> which i don't ever see happening to doug but it's it's one of the things you got to think about when you choose your mate you know because oh, yeah. once that initial infatuation period wears off you better you better have somebody who can make good conversation and ideally make you laugh yeah. can i sit across from this dude eating my favorite food with my hands you know, and is he going to be okay with that? And am I going to be okay yeah. with that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about 
uh, working? Because this is one of the themes of your life, your professional life, personal life, all of it. And I feel like we're both from an era that prized and continues to prize people of our generation working hard. Um, I have seen something very different with the young people today. Not to sound like that old stodgy, crotchety mm-hmm. lady on the corner. They yeah, get off my today. lawn. Right, right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, I'm right. I know I'm right that that there is something going on with the work ethic in our country right now. There was a poll not too long ago showing fewer high school and college students are want to work and do work during the school year. Um, you know, we've gone from just wanting wanting to work and work hard and make a name for ourselves to feeling entitled to advancement within our within our companies mm-hmm. and and the and like the the ever focus now on work life balance which i feel like dude you got to earn that you got to work your ass off and once i really prize you then you can come talk to me about work life balance but don't talk to me about work life balance when you're in your 20s Please. and the the attitude today is totally the opposite well there's an impatience you know, which of course is the opposite of delayed gratification, which is a basic tenet of most definitions of work ethic. Um, I've got eight people who work for me. Um, half of them are millennials and they're terrific. You know, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but if I were to criticize or at least generalize, I do think that it's the impatience that is is the most interesting because it's not necessarily or not always a bad thing, but it is a thing, you know? I mean, my foundation exists to help close the skills gap and to make a more persuasive case for seven or 8 million good jobs that pre-pandemic anyway were open and didn't require a four-year degree. So when I hire people to work with me on that endeavor, um, you know, four or five months go by and they'll, they'll call me or come into the office and say, yeah, you know, I mean, it's going okay. I, 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 I like what we're doing, but, um, you know, the skills gap, it's not closed yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, well, guess what? It's never going to close. This is, you know, people, I think who have a solid work ethic understand there, there's a certain futility and that's probably the wrong word because it sounds depressing, but there's a futility to most jobs and to most great notions. You know, we're pushing the rock up the hill. It's Sisyphean. It's quixotic. You're never going to be done. The work is never going to end. And if you measure your own success and happiness by your ability to complete a thing, then you're not going to be very satisfied and you're not going to be very patient. So. If I were to uh, throw a dart at the millennial target, I would say, yeah, that's a um, that's not a great thing, but it can it can be a good thing. You know, it can the the people I work with are very ambitious. You know, their their bullshit meters are are highly tuned. They don't want to be marketed to. They they want to be persuaded. Unfortunately, they don't know oftentimes how to be persuasive themselves. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's a product of being a millennial or a generation Z or, you know, how persuasive was I when I was 20, you know, I thought I had it all figured out. Maybe you did too, you know, it's, but you're either, I mean, I, I was more along the lines of 
put your head down, keep your mouth shut and work your tail off. And hopefully yeah. your work product will get you noticed. And today, you know, there was an SNL skit called the millennials where they had this clueless millennial young woman demanding a promotion after three days on the job, right? That's, there was a, there was a, Impatient. It was a yeah. couple of years ago. There was a, there was a young woman. She was like mid twenties and she now infamously wrote a letter to the Yelp CEO complaining she was angry that she was going to have to work in an entry level position for an entire year, which she italicized and bolded. And it was actually a great story because th then Yelp fired her ass. I'm like, yes, good oh, for God. Yelp. But I just yeah. think like it's shifted now to like, what are you going to do for me? I'm, I'm entitled to be the CEO by the time I'm 25 and I'm entitled to a seven figure salary because I'm special. And, um, you know, I'm. I'm in a position and always have been when I'm looking at people who want to work with me saying, prove it, prove you deserve it. Don't don't be a whiner and, and stop thinking I owe you anything at all. Right. Look, I, I you'll get no disagreement from me. I mean, the scholarships we offer are called work ethic scholarships and the people who apply need to jump through some hoops. And I've been doing this since 2012 through MicroWorks and we've assisted a little over a thousand people and given away between five and six million dollars modest by foundation standards but my point is it's hard to find people with the qualities that you're talking about and part of what i try and do with the scholarship fund is affirmatively test for work ethic and it's not easy and as i'm sure you know there are lots of scholarship funds out there most of them look for either academic achievement or athletic achievement, or maybe talent, but who's affirmatively looking for and rewarding work ethic. So that's why I'm in that space. And the reason I'm, I pull my punches a little bit when we talk broadly about millennials is that of the thousand or so people that we've helped, all of them are going into a trade school or a certification program where they can learn a skill that's in demand. None of them are going to a four-year university. Now, if you want to talk broadly about what's wrong with, <laughs> with college graduates, and again, I'm still painting with a very broad brush. I understand that. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot easier for me to do because when I get on my soapbox, I look around and I see $1.6 trillion in student loans I see 7.8 million open positions that don't require a four-year degree. And I see our country still furiously lending money we don't have to kids who are never going to be able to pay it back to educate mm -hmm. them for jobs that don't exist anymore. Now, that's just a straight-up tautology. It's crazy, but we're still doing it. And now people are promising to forgive student loans, which is just straight-up batshit crazy. It's crazy. And, and I'm worried. You know, I'm really worried about our relationship, not just to debt in a general way, but our addiction to this idea that the best path for the most people when it comes to education just happens to be the most expensive path. And when people say, you know, how did college get so expensive so fast, you know, in the history of anything valuable, nothing has ever increased in price faster. Not, not real estate, not energy, not healthcare, not food, nothing. 
the price of a four-year degree has risen faster than anything else in the last 40 years. Why? <laughs> because we freed up a bottomless well of money, for one thing. Then we told an entire generation of kids that they'd be completely screwed if they didn't borrow some of it. It's no wonder universities can charge whatever they want. They've been financed, backed by government money. And more importantly, there's this giant list of stigmas and stereotypes and myths and misperceptions that surround the jobs that are actually available. That's, Absolutely. I think, that's why we have a skills gap. That's why we've got monstrous college debt. And that's why we have a lot of people who are perfectly educated for jobs that don't exist anymore living in their parents' basements. Like what? What are the jobs that don't exist anymore that people are spending all the money on? Well, again, I, I always get pushback for this because I am the product of a liberal arts education. It served me really well. Two years in a community college, another couple years at Towson University in Maryland. But that was 1984. And the entire experience cost me between eleven dollars and $12,000. The exact same experience today would come in at around 90 grand. So I'm, I'm not just saying a liberal arts education is bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that at some point, it's too expensive. And look, I was a communications major with a little bit of music and speech thrown in. I checked the one ads, Megan. Nobody's hiring communicators right now. Mm -mm, no. You know, no, no one's. Nor do you need to go to college for that. Correct. Correct. And so it's my my truck is not against a liberal arts degree. I just feel like now, you know, in my hand is my iPhone 11 and my Internet connection is stable, which means I have access to 99 percent of all the known information in the world. I can hop on this computer right now, as I did last week, and watch free lectures from MIT, Harvard, Yale. Brown. All the information is out there. It's all accessible in ways that it's never been before. And yet, for reasons that are hard to articulate and comprehend, it's more expensive than ever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't want to say specifically that this job or that job is, you know, overrated or inflated or, or whatever. Opportunities are what you make and where you find them. But in a general way, if we're going to have a conversation about job satisfaction, and if we're going to try and, and have a, a balanced uh, workforce, then we have to have a different conversation about, you know, the typical blue and white collar. It's not the color of collars anymore. It's, you know, being able as a worker to live in both environments. That's what my foundation tries to do. You know, that's why, by and large, we train welders. If, if you want to weld and you get good at it, I, I can list you dozens of people who are making six figures a year with that one skill. Many others morph and matriculate and pick up a plumbing certification, heating, air conditioning. Um, you know, it's, it's a long list of useful skills. And Nobody ever talks about this, but the number of small businesses that are out there 
that are run by men and women who began their careers, not with a four-year degree, but with the mastery of a skill, it's significant. And honestly, you know, I, I worry for those businesses today that they're headline news right now. And, and yeah, I would count bar and restaurants among them. You know, there, there's so many people out there who are really, really hurting right now because they have been deemed incredibly non-essential. Um, hmm. It'll break your heart. Do you think some of the pushback we're seeing from conservatives, at least on the far left turn these universities have taken, might help? You know, I, I talk to conservatives every week who don't know what to do with their they don't want their kids going to a four year university because they, they think they're going to be pushed to become, you know, woke, far left ideology, embracing people who don't like their parents. And uh, yeah, and. I understand that there isn't there aren't a lot of great alternatives. You know, you've got some colleges out there, Liberty, which is more religious. You've got Hillsdale. Sure. But there's you know, let's face it, the vast majority of universities are controlled by the left and um, mm -hmm. and do support that ideology. Very few conservatives in the in the faculty ranks there. Yeah. Do you think that could help? You know, that, there, that this is a meaningful alternative. You don't have to spend the money. You don't have to subject yourself or your kid to that kind of four year experience. And they can actually still make a lot of money by learning a trade and educating themselves in other ways. Yeah. Well, look, the question is, what is persuasive? What's persuasive to a kid? What's persuasive to that kid's parents? What's persuasive to a guidance counselor? If we're going to talk about the definition of a good job, then we have to talk about the path to that job. And if we still believe the only path to that job or the best path to that job requires us to sign on a dotted line and and go off to a university, then that then, you, then you're going to have that disconnect. I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I think that I think that among the conservative, the conservatives in the country, that realization is, you know, what your former profession would call prima facie, right? I mean, it's self-evident. We can see it. It's not going to tip though until the liberals see it, and. You know, in a weird way, and this is probably a sloppy corollary, but, you know, I most of my friends here in Northern California are to the left of, of center. And many of them, the vast majority, are in lockstep to their opposition to Trump and to the conservative party. However, something really interesting has happened in the last couple of weeks. And this is just anecdotal. This is what I'm seeing in, in my neighborhood of well-appointed homes and successful people. This business with uh, Gavin Newsom dining out at the mm -hmm. French Laundry, it's not a small thing. That, uh, that moment with Nancy Pelosi getting her hair blown out after closing salons, not a small thing. It's happening now in Santa Monica, not far from my office. Sheila Cool, I think her name was, a supervisor, you know, shuts down the restaurants and then goes out to eat. I mean, they're all everywhere you turn, we're seeing people in positions of power uh, contradicting themselves. And, you know, my liberal friends are horrified by that, and they're starting to talk about it. And it's really interesting to me because they've never acknowledged it before. And it just proves that, I don't know who said it, but, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to forgive people for being wrong. And it's, 
it's easy to forgive them for being stupid, but it's hard to forgive hypocrisy, mm-hmm. especially when it's that rank. And when you see people who are being told to shut down and basically just shutter their businesses, you know, it's, it's catastrophic. And when the people who are telling them to do that are simply not following the same rules. Did you see what happened with the Waffle House? Just, just, uh, just the other day, the Waffle House CEO came out and said, basically, you know, this is nuts. He said, mm-hmm. um, you know, none, none of the people making these decisions to shut down the businesses ever have their own livelihood impacted. He, his point was, you can't value enough someone's peace of mind and security in having a job that they can count on. The stimulus checks aren't going to do that. And the people making the decisions, you know, these politicians aren't going to be affected in their pocketbook by shutting down the Waffle House in Orlando or or whatever it is. You know, we see it on the streets of New York City as, as our mayor, de Blasio, is telling everybody they've got to shut down and then sneaking off to the gym in Brooklyn so that he could work out just one more time. You know, they, they don't think about him. What do you think has changed? fundamentally vis-a-vis our relationship with fear. When I look at the, the nineteen eighteen pandemic, when I look at you know any number of events over the last hundred years and the threat and the risk that they pose to us as a people, I've never seen us respond to to a threat with with this level it's it's almost like we we were just told that we're not immortal <laughs> <laughs> right right we just learned this well i'll tell you what i think i i know you're not a political guy but i'll tell you my view on it is somewhat political i think over the past 20 years since 9/11 we haven't had a major catastrophic event happen in the united states anywhere near that until covid and over those past 20 years we've been bathing in fake controversies over what is unsafe. You know, mm. you can no longer hear words that you don't like because you're unsafe. You ha- at mm-hmm. college campuses, you have to have safe spaces you can go to to avoid people who might challenge your world outlook because that's now endangering and dehumanizing. And mm-hmm. we've actually let ourselves convince ourselves that that's what's really dangerous. And so, and, and we have a media that completely supports all of those notions and reinforces them. And so- when something serious actually hits, it, people hit the panic button, you know, and it's, and it's the same media deliverers who have been telling us that words are dangerous. So when an actual virus comes that that is dangerous for to the elderly, um, you know, they lose all perspective and it goes into gear 11, of course, as everything was That's with right. Trump, another gear 11. So I just don't think we don't have we don't have the resolve anymore to say, I'm fine. We're fine. We're going to be able to handle this. Some of us do. But sadly, it's been going another direction. I think I think you're right. And I don't think that's really a a political observation. I think the observation breaks down on political points when you start to unpack it. But it's more an anthropological, sociological phenomenon, in my Mm -hmm. view. I think that, you know, on dirty jobs, we were in constant peril. Risk was everywhere. You know, we we filmed that show in the most hazardous places in the country. And everywhere I went, I would see banners that said safety first. And we would sit through these mandatory safety briefings all the time. And, you know, the first couple of years of the show, 
but nobody got hurt because we were very, very mindful of our surroundings. Uh, and we were very, very careful. By the third season, everybody on my crew either broke a bone, got a concussion, you know, so, nothing really, really terrible, but a lot of near misses and a lot of stitches, you know, <laughs> and something had changed. And I realized what it was, or at least what I thought it was. We had sat through so many safety first briefings that we had started to believe that somebody else cared more about our safety than we did. And of course, the moment you do that, you become complacent. And the moment you become complacent, at least with regard to vocational safety, you get hurt. And so I started saying safety third, <laughs> really, just to remind <laughs> my crew, you know, that it was incumbent on us, not on our employer or our host, you know, we're in charge. You know, there's a huge element of personal responsibility when it comes to yeah. going home in one piece. Well, that led to a special called Safety Third on the Discovery Channel 10 years ago. And ever since, I've been speaking at, you know, railroads and, you know, big, big factories and big companies who, who have a workplace occupational safety thing to consider. And when this pandemic hit, it all kind of came back around to me. Our country has actually bought into the idea that safety is first, that safety is always the most important thing. And it's not. It's mm -hmm. never been. You know, it's ridiculous to try and rank it. Safety always is the sensible thing to say. But when you're confronted with this kind of uh, global decision where somebody else is deciding the most important thing is for everyone to survive, then you've entered a whole new, a whole new realm, a whole new phase of living. Back to Mike in just one second. But first, it's officially the new year. Yay! Happy New Year, everyone. And we've got a lot planned for you here at The Megan Kelly Show. We're going to have a great new year right along with you. The response to the show has just been tremendous. Been very, very gratified to see how many people love it and all the downloads it's gotten. It's been totally record-breaking in terms of its success in such a short time. Um, so we've been inspired to try some new things, a lot of new things, actually, that I think you're going to love. And that is what we call a tease because I can't reveal them yet, but they're ready almost, almost going to happen very soon. So just keep your eye on MeganKelly.com because that's where we're going to post new stuff. And then I'll, of course, bring them to you as well on the podcast. But if you happen to miss something here, you can always go to MeganKelly.com for the updates. And uh, just know we were thinking about you over the holiday season because we got you some presents and um, thinking about you in the new year and how we can make our relationship bigger, bolder, better. Um, and one of those things, actually, while I have your attention is I would love to hear from you on features we do like Devil May Care All-Stars. If you have somebody you want to nominate as somebody who's badass and not bowing to the mob on all this craziness happening in the country, you may submit that to, well, you got a couple of options. Um, you can put everything at questions at devilmaycaremedia.com or you can go on our Insta page, which is just at Megan Kelly show uh, or Facebook or Twitter, any of those places. We watch them all. So you can have a nominee for Devil May Care All-Stars or you can have uh, something that you want me to address in a real talk, right? Like a lot of people have said, like, I 
I wish you would just submit like a five minute news up- update. And if there's something in the news you'd love to hear me address uh, or have some curiosity about, would love to try to handle that for you. So anyway, all those features are wide open for your input. Keep the guest suggestions coming too. Those have been very helpful, actually. Um, so we appreciate it. And again, questions at devilmaycaremedia.com or any of the social media platforms. And while I've got your attention still, go ahead and subscribe to the show because that makes a relationship much. It's like getting married. That goes from just like dating to like getting married. We're married. That's that's you really saying you like the show and me really saying I promise to deliver for you. All right. So there you go. Happy New Year. Stay tuned. A lot more coming your way. Back to Mike. I think for many years now, we've been easing our way towards softness in a way that's not healthy and isn't going to sustain the human race. <laughs> I think uh, whether it's this business with COVID and you know the complete assumption that there can be no personal responsibility that keeps anyone well, right? Like that maybe if I live with an old person, I will choose not to go to the bar in the restaurant because I understand I could endanger him or her, even mm-hmm. though I'm I'm not in the risk group. Um, that's up to me. I can make that decision. But no, the government says, no, it isn't. Everyone has to wear the masks, no matter how healthy you are. My seven-year-old has to wear the mask while running around at resource at recess with a bunch of other seven-year-olds because the government has has issued these mandates that, you know, now schools are just terrified to disobey. But Mike, it, it's also when it comes to just mere words, right? Like we've gotten to the place where we believe words are dangerous. So oh, therefore, sure. you must not speak them. And what happens as a result of that? People become weaker. They become dumber. They become less informed and less able to understand other worldviews, which makes us more insular, more tribal. I think it's dangerous on a number of levels. And the language just becomes less interesting, less words. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. it, it, I, I love our language. There, there are a dozen ways to say any given thing. But if you deem most of those ways to be incorrect in some way, you, you're right. It makes everything dumber. But look, I'll say something politically stupid. This will come back to haunt me, I'm sure. But when I was listening to you Welcome to my world. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, you know, (laughs) it's the it's the uh, it's the sameness. It's the it's the cookie cutter approach to living that, in my experience, has never, ever, 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 ever worked. And to get elected politicians, they need to trade in bromides. They need to, they need to hand out the platitudes. They need to, mm. you know, talk to the fat part of the bat. But that's not who we are. We're a lot of different people. And, you know, when you tell a kid, for instance, you know, that, that college is good, well, that doesn't mean college is good for him or her. So, but having said that, the why? Why do we treat everybody the same? with regard to the pandemic. And what if the answer has something to do with the same reason? (laughs) What if the answer has something to do with racial profiling and stop and frisk? It's a bit of a leap, but go with me for a second. Some people, well-intended people, believe that fairness in a society happens when everybody is treated the same way. That kind of equality, in other words. Consequently, when my mom travels, this 82-year-old woman is subjected to the exact same rigor as a 30-year-old coming to the country for the first time from Yemen. 
Um, mm-hmm. The TSA looks at both of them the same. And consequently, everything is fair and we can all sleep soundly. Stop and Frisk obviously had some problems, but we don't do that anymore because if you're looking specifically at one group of people in one way and not at another group in another way, that's bad. That's unfair. My point is not to say that any of those things are good, bad, right, wrong, smart, or stupid. It's just to say that there is a tendency. I know I'm generalizing, but there is a tendency among half the people in this country to default to a kind of thinking that says we need to treat everybody the same. Hot spot, cold spot, doesn't matter. We're going to treat everything like a hot spot. Old, at risk, young, healthy, doesn't matter. We're going to treat you all basically the same, not because it's smart to do that, but because the optics are just so jarring that we can't bring ourselves to discriminate. And you want to talk about words, losing meaning or taking on new heft? How about that one? How about discrimination? Discrimination is a terrific word. It means discernment. It means, hmm, I look down the alley, it appears to be dark. It appears to be populated by some unsavory looking types. So I'm going to uh, make a discriminating decision and not walk down the alley. It's not a bad word, but it's become a bad word. Mm-hmm. And um, something you said, it just, it just made me think, you know, this is the, this is what's happening in the reptilian part of our brain. And it's part of what's dividing us. So many people don't believe that we should take an ad hoc Chinese menu approach to treating this thing. They believe that a cookie cutter approach is the smart, fair, prudent thing to do. And, um, you know, that goes to worldview. And that's right. It's hard to change the worldview. We've gotten incredibly risk averse and, and risk is not inherently bad. Risk can lead to great reward. Sometimes you can fall flat on your face. Sometimes you can break the arm. But in my experience, usually succeed or fail, you emerge the better person for having taken it. And we're, <laughs> we're, we're sending different messages now. If safety were truly first, if safety were truly first, what company would be in business? You know, if safety were truly first, our, our cars would be made of rubber. They would not mm-hmm. expe- exceed speeds of 15 miles an hour. We would all wear helmets and we would eliminate left-hand turns. There'd if you no did more that, liquor stores. No more liquor stores. Look, the things we could do to save millions of lives every year are manifold. We don't do those things because we've made a calculation and we've decided that the risk, and by the way, it's not even a risk. We've decided from an actuarial standpoint that the certainty of 35,000 automotive deaths in the coming year, the certainty of that is a fair trade for the ability to come and go as we like and drive our vehicles at the posted speeds and so forth. It's, it's a bargain that we made. 690,000 people died last year of heart disease. We could stop a lot of that by dramatically changing the types of foods we sell and implementing a mandatory exercise program. We're not going to do that. 
because 690,000 deaths is a fair trade for the freedom to live the way we want to do. Now, people don't like to say that out loud, but how else can you conclude when you look at the reality of the data? 10 million people died of cancer last year. They're going to die this year. 10 million people starved to death. You know, I read something the other day and I, maybe you can verify it, but it, it, it seems, it seems real. It seems in multiple places. The CDC has concurred that the number of starvation deaths likely to occur as a result, not of the disease, but of the lockdowns Mm -hmm. will be between 80 and a hundred million around the world. Because the logistic chain has been destroyed because trucks can't get where they need to go with the food. This is what the Red Cross is saying. This is what a lot of organizations are saying. (laughs) We just have no real understanding of the unintended consequences on a global level of shutting down the most powerful country in the world and every other country for that matter. It's going to be mind boggling. Think about the split in how people are coming down on these harsh shutdowns. And it does tend to be, you know, the the media seems 100 percent behind them. Um, And sort of the liberal elites seem to be the ones shaming others who tend to be more working class, more dirty jobs kind of people who say, I'll take the risk. I want to put food on my table. I'll I'll do what I need to do to protect myself and my family. But let me work. Let me work. It's not the media people who are going to lose their jobs. You're not going to lose your anchor job on CNN because there's a shutdown of bars and restaurants and other industries, as you point out, that are deemed non-essential. And yeah. um, like it, it to me, it seems it does seem like a class issue. And, I, you know, I think the dirty jobs are the noble jobs where you really do get your hands dirty and you're you're in the street all day and you don't mind it and you're you have a certain mentality of my life may be risky and it may be dirty and that's okay and and sometimes you get hurt sometimes n- not the perfect result happens sometimes there it isn't perfectly equal back to your other point yeah and that's the way america is and used to be i don't know mike i i think Maybe you're right. Maybe they've overstepped to the point where there's going to be an uprising. And and I do think the political messaging is playing into this because that same group of people, many of whom voted for Donald Trump, has been told for four years that they're awful, mm. that they are horrible, that they, because they support this guy who seemed to reach out to them and say, I'll fight for you. Not only are they just, you know, dumb and stupid and not worthy of celebrating, but they're racist they're sexist. They're xenophobic. God, it's the old. Tr- Look, this is a big generalization, but I do find some some truth in it. By and large, my my friends on the right will look at my friends on the left and conclude that they're mistaken. And my friends on the left will look at my friends on the right and conclude that they are evil. And there's a big difference between being wrong and wicked. And so that is an unfortunate way to set the table. And the word deplorable was an amazing choice to make. And one of the truest things I think that was ever said, maybe not intentionally, I'm sure she'd like to have that one back, but man, that set the table. And when Hillary Clinton called half the country deplorable, half the country listened and, and they believed her. And so, you know, 
ever since. I mean, that was one of many, but that was certainly a moment where people looked around and said, wow, there's a line. <laughs> there's a line in the country and it's being drawn mm -hmm. as we speak. Am I deplorable? I'm not, you know, people, I mean, I know a lot of people who ask themselves that question. So, yes, right. you know, it's a, it's a heck of a thing. And do you think um, we're, do you think we're, we're losing? Cause I think after Trump was elected, people started to see that, you know, I think some of my liberal friends started to see, okay, there, there, we seem to be getting a message from, you know, the work, working class workers of America that we need to pay some attention to them, that not every policy can be to please the chamber of commerce. Right. And then that was a Republican yeah. problem. But I think sort of the more elite started to say, OK, let's listen. But now now just people are angry and they seem to be I don't know when they, they're looking at these Trump voters and the white working class and the black working class. They seem to be saying something very different. Yeah, I think it has to do with I don't know. It's just like last week I interviewed J.D. Vance and we were talking about his the, the, the movie based on his book, Hillbilly Elegy, that's come out. He's getting mm -hmm. killed, killed in the reviews, which was completely predictable. Yeah. But the, I read those reviews and I think the movie was great. And I think, you know what? It's OK to it's OK to go after deplorables again. And it's and it's not OK to humanize them as he does. Look, Megan, it's it's that's just straight up hubris. You know, it, it, I've spent the last nine months working from home and and prospering. And I know that. And I know a lot of people haven't. So therefore, and for no other reason, I can't mouth off about a whole lot of things that I might have an opinion on because I've been able to work. You know, the CNN and the Fox News anchors have been able to work and yet they have opinions and they and they just can't help but share them. And mm -hmm. so it's 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 appalling to me the lack of self-awareness among so many people who have a platform. And look, I've been accused of it too. I suppose I'm guilty from time to time, but by and large, you know, I try to stay in my lane and I try not to get over my skis with all this. But do you remember when the smoking thing really tipped? When 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 public sentiment really, really once and for all and forever turned against the cigarette industry? I th I think it was around the issue of secondhand smoke. I th I think when people realized that it wasn't their decision to smoke was not necessarily the proximate cause of them getting smoke into their lungs. And when that happened, right, secondhand smoke became a thing and it became a deadly thing. Part of what's going on right now, I think, is that our breath has been deemed to be secondhand smoke. The mask argument is no longer about whether or not I get to choose to assume a certain level of risk vis-a-vis -vis my decision to wear or not wear a mask. It's, oh, you selfish bastard. You're not wearing a mask. Therefore, you're filling the air with your own toxic breath and you're going to kill grandma. Um, and that, you know, I understand that argument. It, it, it's the exact same argument I heard persuasively made around why cigarettes ought to be outlawed. Unfortunately, we're not talking about smoke. We're talking about breath. And we're talking about the fact that millions of viruses exist in a drop of seawater. And the air is filled with things. The, 
the world is filled with things that can kill us. You know, we live in a desperately dangerous place and nobody's getting out of it alive, you know. But this new thing, this new thing has come along and the idea that somebody can breathe on us and infect us with a disease that has a 99% survival rate, if you happen to be under 70, has for some reason petrified us to the point where we're simply not thinking rationally. And, um, you know, sometimes things just have to go splat before they get better. And I don't know what that means in this case, but we've just seen a lot of rioting. We've seen a lot of protesting and I understand why it happened. We could see that again, times 10, if, if this goes too far and people well and truly believe their liberties and their livelihoods and their country is being transformed under their feet. I'm fascinated and, <laughs> and a little frightened by what could happen. Can't, let's talk about freedom for a minute. There, um, there was a poll that recently came out that said it was talking to young people. Um, as we've seen a lot with young people, the, the rise in support for socialism is spiking. This, this is actually not particularly new. A lot, of, a lot of young people, when they go to these universities and they get told about how wonderful the Communist Manifesto is, they suddenly say, oh, it's a good idea. I'm going to be a Marxist. Sadly, that's the truth. But then they tend to grow out of it. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, the, other, the, the, the other stat that jumped out at me from this survey was that only 44% see the flag as representing freedom. I mean, okay. that to me is nuts. And yeah. a little scary, like the, just the erosion of patriotism and love for the country. What do you think? I think that uh, I think that's symptomatic of something. You know, I don't think it's a problem in and of itself, not to minimize it, but I just think there's something under it, you know, and I guess maybe it's maybe it's curiosity. Maybe we're less curious than we used to be, you know. I mean, and maybe I'm just saying that because I work for the Discovery Channel and satisfying curiosity is their mandate. And so I I tend to look at everything through the lens of you're either interested in it, curious about it, or persuasive, you know, but you can't be persuasive until you're informed and you can't be informed unless you're curious. And if you think socialism is a good idea, well, then persuade me. And if you can't persuade me, it's because you don't know anything. And if you don't know anything, it's because you're not curious enough to go around the world or read and, and, and make, make a persuasive case for socialism. Do that. I, I say that every day to people who, who take that view. I like to think my mind is open enough to be persuaded. It's just that I can't find a single example in the history of the whole world where socialism has worked. And no, I don't want to hear about Denmark or Sweden. That's not socialism. That's, that's a kind of high tax capitalism. Um, I've just, I'm standing by, you know, I'm standing by to look at the study and to, and to hear a case for it. And it can't just be, well, capitalism bad, or look at, look at the bad things that happen in a cap. Capitalism is, is not perfect. In fact, there's a lot wrong with it. 
I've just looked around and for the life of me, I can't find a better plan. I can't, I can't find a, I can't imagine of a single thing in the history of the world that has elevated more desperate people up from poverty than capitalism. It's, it's one of the great success stories of all time. And conversely, socialism has got to be one of the greatest and most impressive failures of all time. The guy from Whole Foods just wrote a terrific book. John, uh, what's his name? Is it John McKay? Mm -hmm. John? Uh, yeah, Mackey. Mackey, right. Conscious Capitalism was his first one. He wrote something called Conscious uh, Leadership, I think, is his second one. But, you know, he makes this point. You know, the evidence demands a verdict. And there is no shortage of evidence to make a case for capitalism. Uh, or a case against socialism. Or you could say it the other way too, but you have to look at the evidence. And it's, to me, it's just, it's just overwhelming. We're not a perfect country. We don't have a perfect system. The constitution is not a perfect document. The flag has evolved just as surely as the bill of rights has. It's changed. Its complexion is different and so forth. We're, we're a work in progress. But to affirmatively look at the iconography, um, the symbols of our country, and to then just lean back and evaluate the decisions made by our ancestors and look at them through the lens of modern sensibility, that is the height of arrogance, in my view, and the very definition of an incurious mind. It's 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 a it's a statue to laziness is what it is this is the thing for me the biggest difference and again I, I i keep qualifying this in a stupid way you know i have many liberal friends i really do my best friends are are very liberal and just the other night we were sitting around socially distanced naturally drinking beer in between the moments where we lowered and raised our mask uh, <laughs> and you know, I said to a group of my friends, it's like, it's amazing what we agree on. In fact, I can't think of really a single big issue whose outcome we, we wouldn't all like to see. It's just a matter of process. And in a general way, if I'm going to say something critical to you, I would say that you're impatient in the same way the millennials are that we talked about before. You look for shortcuts. A high minimum wage is a shortcut. Uh, rent control is a shortcut. Now, we'd both like to see people paid fairly. Not of, none of us want to see people evicted from their homes. But if you look at the policies that are either popular or not popular, then I think you can, in a very general way, say, well, that's a shortcut or it isn't. Um, I think, as I understand it, Socialism is a shortcut. Capitalism is not. And capitalism is messy because there's competition and people are going to fail. Good people are going to fall short, you know? Uh, and so, again, it's well-intended people can disagree over the way to get to a place, you know? But the place that we're all trying to get to, and I take some hope in this, is by and large the same. So what are we arguing over, really? It's process. 
you so know, two, po- two points on that. One, I, I agree with everything you said. And I also think you could expand it to what's happening right now. The discussion we're happening in the, in the we're having in the country over race. I think most people want the same thing, equality, love, support, non-judgment, opportunity. Uh, but there are real disagreements, I think, in particular between Republicans and Democrats on how we get there. How, how do we get there? Right. You can just go back to the disputes we used to have over affirmative action. Now it's morphed into disputes about, you know, should you be doing what Robin D'Angelo wants you to do or should you be doing what Professor Glenn Lowry of Brown University wants you to do? But everybody wants equality and opportunity and, and love and support. You know, it's just but what we do in today's day and age is demonize anybody who doesn't see the root there the same way we do. And well, and yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, uh, look, uh, to me, the entire race thing, and I'm going to really oversimplify this, um, but isn't the goal of the entire conversation to become a colorblind society? I mean, well, it used to be. It seems like ultimately the best world we could hope to live in would be a world where people look around and truly do not give a tinker's damn what color your skin is. So it's a great example because every thoughtful person I know loves that world. We don't, you know, we imagine a world where we don't see color, but everything we seem to do in order to get to that place is accentuate color. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it, it's just a fundamental tautology, I think. I mean, how can you, how can you correct a problem with affirmative action, for instance? You know, how can you hope that the ultimate end result of that policy is going to get us to a colorblind place? when the very definition of that policy precludes certain people from participating in it. Well, you know, the answer on these on, on this general argument is only white people would say such a thing, which isn't true, of course. And, you know, many black intellectuals are saying exactly the same thing. But sure. it's your white privilege that makes you say, let's not make color a thing. You know, the, these activists, white and black yeah. alike, these activists would say, um, it is an issue because America is systemically racist and we have no no choice but to acknowledge that and work past that. And I would buy that criticism because I just made it to you a half hour ago when I talked about, you know, the hypocrites in the media who who who, who can't see their own place of privilege and therefore hold forth with just delightful impunity. Um, what I'm saying here is that, okay, if you want to take everything I just said and say, well, that's easy for you to say, you rich white guy in the middle of your life. All right. I'll, I'll accept for the purposes of the argument being dismissed based on those things I can't control. But then what are you going to say to Thomas Sowell? What are you going to say to Tim Scott? What are you going to say to Candace Owens? What are you going to say to all of the black people who said the same thing I said? Well, you're going to call them Uncle Toms. You're going to criticize anything you don't agree with, not based on 
the substance of the observation, but on the color of the observer, which is the precise thing you're complaining about in the first place. And so if you can't see that, you know, then then I'd go back to my earlier point and say, you're not a genuinely curious person. You're, you're something else. You're a, you're an advocate and that's okay too. You know, the world needs advocates, but it's important to know when you're being sold something and when you're going on an exploration, these people, they're not exploring the kind of society that, that I would like to live in a colorblind society. They're exploring ways to gin up conflict, to keep their thumb on the scale and keep us more and more divided. You know, going back to something you said about, well, discovery and exploring, and that really is how you've spent your life. But you were saying maybe it's because you work for the Discovery Channel that you have a different view of patriotism, America, capitalism, all these things. I think it's also because you spend a lot of time with veterans. And I do think you tend to love the country and see the flag differently if you spend a lot of time with veterans. How do you not? You know, I mean, 1% of the population wears a uniform. Every single freedom that we enjoy has been paid for in blood. People roll their eyes when I say that because it sounds like a talking point off of a monument, but it's true. Every single thing we have was paid for by somebody who either volunteered or answered the draft or put on the uniform and paid the ultimate price. You're either impressed by that or you're not. If you're not, okay. But Jesus, what's it take to impress you? Incidentally, one and a half percent of our country are farmers. One and a half percent feed 330 million people three times a day. You're either impressed by that or you're not. If you're not, okay, but Jesus, I mean, what's it take? You know, our skilled workforce is a relatively small percentage of our country. But when you flick on the switch and the light comes on and flush the toilet and the poop goes away, you know, these are miracles. These are modern miracles that we all take for granted. And you're either impressed by that or you're not. So dirty jobs and somebody's got to do it and returning the favor and the way I heard it, every show I've ever worked on is essentially the same show. I just changed the title every couple of years and their, their goals are all interchangeable. I, my job, I think to the extent I have one is to tap the country on the shoulder every so often and say, Hey, get a load of him, get a load of her. Look at what's going on over here. So on returning the favor, you know, I get to do that a lot. And We've done 100 episodes and 14 or 15 have been based on veterans. Roughly the same number have been based on farmers. (laughs) And I didn't realize it when I was doing it. But when I look back on it, I, I I think that in a really general way, aside from our country's uh, fungible, ever-changing definition and relationship with risk, we have a similar fungible, ever-changing definition of gratitude. And if we're not a grateful people, and I say this, you know, on a, on a micro and a macro level, if we're not fundamentally grateful for what we have, 
then we're essentially rolling out the red carpet to a long list of feelings that, that we're not going to enjoy. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to be angry when you're fundamentally grateful. It's hard to be bitter. It's hard to be suspicious and resentful. It's hard to be envious when you're fundamentally grateful for what you have. But it just seems like because we're not as curious as we once were, we don't have an understanding of history the way we should. And so we look around in relative terms and we don't see our country for the miracle that it is. We don't see our form of government for the singularly remarkable construct that it is. Instead, we look at Mount Rushmore and go, mm, probably be prettier without all those slave owners up there. You know, mm -hmm. it's an amazing thing, this ability <laughs> to judge our ancestors based on what we know to be true today. Can you imagine? Imagine 150 years from now whose statues are going to be pulled down. Right. That will depend entirely on how woke and how enlightened that generation is. I mean, 150 years from now, what will the topic be that most mirrors the way we feel about slavery today? Mm. I don't know anybody who doesn't look back at slavery and go, oh my God, it's, it's the human stain. It's our great sin. What a terrible thing. What a demonstrably, undeniably terrible thing that was. What do you think, 150 years from now, that generation will be saying the same thing about? Could it be eating meat? Could it be abortion? Capital punishment? Anything that's in the headlines right now that seems controversial is going to be completely worked out 150 years from now, assuming we make it that long, including the environment. And when that generation looks back at us, how harshly, how harshly will they judge us? You know, if they judge us as harshly as we judge our ancestors, then <laughs> whose statue is safe? Right. Who will be left standing? It, it reminds me of the, um, there was a report not long ago about the um, a, a famous, the uh, the famous Martin Luther King biographer, this guy, David Garrow, who mm. um, got access to these FBI files from the 1960s studying Martin Luther King Jr. And some of what was in there was not good, uh, suggesting he had affairs with 40 women. This is a guy who won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting oh, yeah. on King, yep. uh, that he stood by as a friend, raped a woman. Was not good stuff. Yep. It's never going to change what Martin Luther King did for That's the right. race relations in this country. It's hard. It's hard to sum up the character of any man or a woman um, by by diminishing it based on even one terrible thing. You know, people are complicated. And back then, when when, you know, Thomas Jefferson had slaves, sadly, so did a lot of other people. It just wasn't yeah. the same. And, I, and you're right. I think when it comes to even just the way we treat our animals today and, you know, when you think about what happens with the chickens, what happens with the cows and so on, it makes it hard. But right now we're not there. Doesn't make everybody who has a hamburger a bad person. It, it's so delightfully glib and easy. That's all I'm saying. You know, the, the, it's the laziness that allows us to take our standards and apply them to Alexander the Great or George Washington, 
or Willie and the Conqueror or Sally Hemings or it, it you know, and, oh, Willie, Winston Churchill. Of course. Of course. You know, if if you can't separate. Look, Martin Luther King, when he talked about the the content of character, that idea deserves to be ruminated on and and unpacked um, completely separate from the man as as all ideas do because all men are deeply irredeemably flawed mm-hmm. we're, who are we kidding we're all pigs we all know it <laughs> you know <laughs> we, we all know it it's just you know if if i if, see myself we, as more of a cougar Hey, not yet. Give yourself another 10 years. <laughs> You're still a lioness, Megan. Ooh, I like that better. Okay, I'll choose lioness over pig. But the point is animals. We're animals. Yes. Yes. I mean, look, I, I do think there's a hierarchy of, of species. Um, and I do make value judgments all the time. And I, and I, I can't defend it, but I look at dogs differently than I look at chickens. Um, but who knows 150 years from now what the most mm-hmm. enlightened among us who knows how they're going to make sense of our inconsistencies our proclivities our flaws our contradictions our hypocrisies well i am going to ruminate on what you just said if we're not a grateful people then we're rolling out the red carpet to anger bitterness and envy as we go into the new year, which I do think is exactly right. It's, it's profound. It's simple, but it's profound. And I like it a lot better than we live in a very dangerous world and no one is getting out alive. (laughs) (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you in part by Jan Marini Skin Research. Dramatic results, dermatologists recommended. Get your award-winning skincare system now at janmarini.com. Don't miss the next show we have coming up because it's Amy Chua, Tiger Mom. Remember Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother? She wrote it along with some other fascinating books. She's a Yale Law School professor and mentor to J.D. Vance. We might not never we might have never had Hillbilly Elegy if it hadn't been for Amy Chua, who was J.D.'s law school professor, saw what he had written down and said, J.D., you got to keep writing and turn this into a book. So we have her to thank for J.D., which is good. Uh, But she's written a book on tribalism. Could that be better timed? And she studied it for years and years and years and sees how it turns out in other countries that get more and more tribal, more and more uh, entrenched in their respective camps. And she's got some predictions for how it's going to go in this country, which, as you know, is feeling more tribal than ever. She knows why it happened and where it's going. And we'll talk about not allowing any play dates, any sleepovers, any sports, any grade other than A, <laughs> and how how that's working out. I love this woman. We're very different in terms of our parenting approach, but she's amazing. And you're going to love her too. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about to win the Tuesday Night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. 